0: Chapter Ten of Fast in the Ice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fast in the Ice by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Ten: The Tale of a Kite, A Great Bear Fight. When Mister Mansell was left in charge of the brig, a heavy weight lay on his heart and he could by no means take part in the preparations for the theatricals which occupied the rest of the crew. He felt that life or death depended on the success of the captain in his search for fresh meat. Already most of the men were ill with scurvy, and some of them were alarmingly low. Nothing could save them but fresh meat, and when the first mate thought of the difficulties and dangers of a journey on the floes in such weather, and the uncertainty of the Eskimos being discovered, His heart misgave him. About an hour after the departure of Captain Harvey, on the Monday morning, he took Davy Butts aside. "'Davy,' he said, "'you've been at work on these kites a long time. Are they nearly finished?' "'Quite finished, sir,' answered Butts. "'Then get them up, for there is a good breeze. I shall try them on our small sledges. It will at least stir up and amuse the men.' Ten minutes after this the crew were summoned on deck to witness an experiment." A small dog-sledge lay on the hard snow beside the vessel, and near to this Davy Butts and Mr. Dicey were holding on to a stout line at the end of which an enormous kite was pulling. This kite was square in shape, made of the thickest brown paper, and nearly six feet across. That its power was great was evident from the difficulty with which the two men held it. The end of the line was fastened to the sledge. "'Now, boys,' "'Ease off the line till it is taut, and then wait for the word,' said Davy Butts, "'jumping on the sledge. Now, let go!' Away went the sledge, over the hard snow, at the rate of three miles an hour, which soon increased to double that rate. Davy cheered and waved his arms. The men gave one loud hurrah of surprise and delight, and set off in mad pursuit. They were soon left behind. "'Hold on, Davy. Goodbye, Butts!' Look out! Mind that ridge!' The last warning was needful. The sledge was rushing furiously towards a long ridge of ice, which rose in a sharp slope to a height of three feet, and descended on the other side to an equal depth, but without any slope. Davy saw his danger, but he did not dare put out a foot or hand to check his progress. Even if he had, it would have been of no use. Up the slope he went as a seagull skims over a wave." For one moment he was in the air, the next he came down with a crash that nearly dislocated all his joints, and his teeth came together with a loud snap. By good fortune his tongue was not between them. The sledge was a strong one, and the thing was done so quickly and neatly that it did not upset. But now a large and rugged hummock lay right before him. To go against that would have been certain death so Davy made up his mind at once and jumped off at the smoothest part of the flow he could find. The lightened sledge sprang away like a rocket and was brought up with a sudden jerk by the hummock. Of course the line broke, and the kite commenced to descend. It twirled and circled violently round, and at last went crash into an iceberg where it was broken to pieces. Not so bad for a beginning, said Mansell, as poor Davy came back. "'looking very crestfallen. "'Now Butts, come below. "'You have proved that the thing will do. "'Mr. Dicey, get yourself ready for a trip over the ice. "'Let three men prepare to accompany you. "'I shall send you off to-morrow.' "'Dicey, much surprised, went off to obey these orders, "'and Mansell, with the assistance of Butts, "'fitted the second kite for the intended journey. "'He made a rough guess at the strength of its pull "'and loaded the sledge accordingly.' Two tail-ropes were fastened to the last bar of the sledge, for the men to hold on by and check its speed. A sort of anchor was made by which it could be stopped at any moment, and two stout poles with iron claws at the end of them were prepared for scraping over the snow and checking the pace. Next day all was ready. A trial was made, and the thing found to work admirably. The trial trip over, they bade their comrades farewell, and away they went due south in the direction where the native village was supposed to be. It was this remarkable tow-horse that had filled Captain Harvey and his companions with so much surprise. The appearance of the sledge immediately after, with a shout and a cheer from Dicey and the men, explained the mystery. Being so near the Eskimo camp, they at once returned to it, in order to allow the newly-arrived party to rest, as well as to load their sledge with as much fresh meat as it could carry for which supplies the captain took care to pay the natives with a few knives and a large quantity of hoop-iron articles that were much more valuable to them than gold as the wind could not be made to turn about to suit their convenience the kite was brought down and given to davy to carry and a team of native dogs were harnessed to the sledge instead on the following day the united party set out on their return to the brig which they reached in safety tom gregory's account of the eskimos who accompanied them to their wooden home is amusing his journal runs thus the amazement of our visitors is very great mayuk his wife and baby and his son Metek are now our guests when they first came in sight of the brig they uttered a wild shout the men did so at least and tossed their arms and opened their eyes and mouths they have never shut them since They go all round the vessel, staring and gaping with amazement. We have given them a number of useful presents, and intend to send them home loaded with gifts for all their friends. It is necessary to make a good impression on them. Our lives depend very much on the friendship of these poor people. We find that they are terrible thieves. A number of knives and a hatchet were missed. They were found hidden in Miuk's sledge. We tried to prevail on Omiya to sell her long boots. To our surprise she was quite willing to part with one, but nothing would induce her to give up the other. One of the men observed her steal a knife out of the cabin and hide it in the leg of her boot. The reason was now plain. We pulled off the boot without asking leave and found there a large assortment of articles stolen from us. Two or three knives, a spoon, a bit of hoop-iron, and a marline spike. "'I have tried to make them understand by signs "'that this is very wicked conduct, but they only laugh at me. "'They are not in the least ashamed, and evidently regard stealing as no sin. "'We have shot a musk-ox. "'There are many of these creatures in other parts of the Arctic regions, "'but this is the first we have seen here.' He fell to my rifle, and is now being devoured by ourselves and our dogs with great relish. He is about the size of a very small cow, has a large head and enormously thick horns, which cover the whole top of his head, bend down towards his cheek, and then curve up and outward at the point. He is covered with long brown hair, which almost reaches the ground, and has no tail worthy of the name. He seems to be an active and angry creature, when I wounded him, he came at me furiously, but had not plucked to charge home. As he turned away, I gave him the shot that killed him. The meat is not bad, but it smells strongly of musk. Walrus is better. Meyuk and his son, Metek, and I have had a most exciting bear hunt since we returned. I followed these men one day, as I thought them bold, active-looking fellows, who would be likely to show me good Eskimo sport. And I was not disappointed. About two miles from the brig, we came on fresh bear tracks. A glow of the aurora gave us plenty of light. What is yon round white lump? Thought I, a bear? No, it must be a snow wreath. Miuke did not think so, for he ran behind a lump of ice and became excited. He made signs to me to remain there while he and his son should go and attack the bear. They were armed each with a long lance. I must say when I remember the size and strength of the polar bear that I was surprised to find these men bold enough to attack him with such arms. I had my rifle, but determined not to use it except in case of necessity. I wished to see how the natives were accustomed to act. They were soon ready, gliding softly from one lump of ice to another. They got near enough to make a rush. I was disobedient. I followed and when the rush was made I was not far behind them. The bear was a very large one. It uttered an angry growl on seeing the men running toward it, and rose on its hind legs to receive them. It stood nearly eight feet high when in this position, and looked really a terrible monster. I stood still behind a hummock at a distance of about fifty yards, with my rifle ready. On coming close up, the father and son separated, and approached the bear, one on each side. This divided his attention, and puzzled him very much, for when he made a motion as if he were going to rush up Meyuk, Metek flourished his spear, and obliged him to turn. Then Meyuk made a demonstration, and turned him back again. Thus they were enabled to get close to its side before it could make up its mind which to attack. But the natives soon settled the question for it. Miuk was on the bear's right side, Mitek on the left. The father pricked it with the point of his lance. A tremendous roar followed, and the enraged animal turned towards him. This was just what he wanted, because it gave the son an opportunity of making a deadly thrust. Mitek was not slow to do it. He plunged his lance deep into the bear's heart, and it fell at once at full length, while a crimson stream "'poured out of the wound upon the snow. "'While this fight was going on, "'I might have shot the animal through the heart with great ease, "'for it was quite near to me, "'and when it got up on its hind legs, "'its broad chest presented a fine target. "'It was difficult to resist the temptation to fire, "'but I wished to see the native manner of doing the thing "'from beginning to end, so did not interfere. "'I was rewarded for my self-denial.' half an hour later while we were dragging the carcass toward the brig we came unexpectedly upon another bear Miuke and Mitek at once grabbed their lances and ran forward to attack him i now resolved to play them a trick besides my rifle i carried a large horse pistol in my belt this i examined and finding it all right i followed close at the heels of the eskimos bruin got up on his hind legs as before and the two men advanced close to him. I stopped when within thirty yards, cocked my rifle, and stood ready. Miyuk was just going to thrust his lance when bang went my rifle. The bear fell. It was shot right through the heart, but it struggled for some time after that. The natives seemed inclined to run away when they heard the shot, but I laughed and made signs of friendship. Then I went close up and shot the bear through the head with my pistol. This affair has filled my savage companions with deep respect for me. These two bears were the last they obtained that winter, but as a good supply of meat had been obtained from the Eskimos, they were relieved from anxiety for the time, and the health of the men began to improve a little. But this happy state of things did not last till spring. These sorely tired men were destined to endure much suffering before the light of the sun came back to cheer their drooping spirits. End of chapter 10.